The Healthy Charleston podcast is brought to you by Made to Move Physical Therapy. Made to Move Physical Therapy specializes in helping you get out of pain and get back to doing what you love. We offer relationship-oriented, one-on-one, individualized care to all of our clients, and we believe in putting the patient's needs first. If you'd like to work with me or any of our other physical therapists at Made to Move, check out the link in the show notes and get 10% off of your first session. We have locations throughout Charleston, Mount Pleasant, West Ashley, Somerville, and Daniel Island. Don't waste another day stuck in your pain. Follow the link and schedule an appointment today. Welcome to the Healthy Charleston Podcast, where we help you take ownership of your health and fitness. My name is Hannah, and I am here to be your source of accurate health and fitness information while spreading awareness about all of the different health and fitness resources available to you in the Charleston area. Be sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Hallie Teco is changing healthcare. She's passionate about women's health and female empowerment. Hallie is the co-founder of CoFertility, Natalist, and Rock Health. And on this episode, we talk all about fertility medicine, freezing your eggs, equal parenting, and how fertility-friendly lube was what sparked her to start her own fertility and pregnancy product business, Natalist. We've come a long way with women's health, but we still have very far to go. And Hallie is committed to being on the front lines of changing women's health care. She just launched CoFertility, which allows you to freeze your eggs for free by donating half of them to a family in need. I'll let her tell you all about it. Before we start, make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Now on to the show. Hallie, I am so honored that you're coming on the show because I don't know if you knew this, but you're kind of a badass. Well, thank you. Did you know that? (laughs) I'm honored to be here. And, you know, I aspire to be a badass. There you go. Yeah. Thank you. The more I learn about you, the more I'm like, she is goals. So thank you so much (laughs) for coming on. Awesome. I'm excited to talk. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and your background and what you do? I work in women's health and digital health. I'm very passionate about improving our healthcare system, especially for people who've been Uh, overlooked, including, and most importantly, women like myself and you. And so that has kind of evolved over the years, I guess, like to wind back to my beginning of my career. I was in finance and I went back to business school. And at business school is really where I got interested in kind of the intersection of healthcare and innovation. In business school, I worked at Apple where I covered the app store, which was like a year old at the time. That's how old I am. The app store was a year old. (laughs) Uh, This was 2010. And I was 25 years old. And they were like, here, just like you can be in charge of the healthcare segment. Like, great. Like, come do this. And I was like, of all of the segments, because at the time, the healthcare segment really sucked. And so it was like, they didn't really want to hire someone full time. So like an intern should do it. So it was uh, it was awesome because I got to you know be behind the scenes in the app store and work with developers and like see how the inner workings of Apple operate, which was amazing. And uh, I sat next to a woman who covered the gaming segment, and I was just like so jealous of developers that were coming in and bringing like just apps that were using all the native features of the iPhone and were super innovative. And like the developers that I was working with were like hospitals that outsource their app development to like, you know, overseas. And it was like a check the box strategy. It was like really clunky usability. And it just like wasn't a great user experience. And I was like, this makes no sense. Literally the amount of money that you make on all of the apps, like combined all the gaming apps and like advertising revenue is a small fraction of the like multi-trillion dollar healthcare industry. So here I'm like, I'm like, hello, there's like this huge industry that is completely missing out on like the mobile revolution. And so the woman who sat next to me, by the way, I've now worked with her two times since then. She's become a really good friend of mine. She was on my board at my last company. I'm working with her now in a new company. But that was kind of like, for me, the genesis of like my career. And I was like, there's like healthcare is just so behind and there's so much that we can do to improve patient outcomes, improve patient experience, lower cost, increase accessibility, and we're just not doing it. So I finished business school and decided I wanted to like work in in venture and like 
fund companies and support companies working in this space, but like no one would hire me um, because this like didn't exist at the time. And so I ended up just like doing it on my own. And I was like, all right, well, I'll just be the person to bring these people together. And so started Rock Health uh, in like 2009, 2010. And the idea there was to kind of like bring together healthcare people and tech people to like solve some of the biggest problems that we face in healthcare. And so we got funding and like we're backed by a lot of the large healthcare players, Mayo Clinic, Kaiser Permanente, and raised really the first fund dedicated to digital health. We we helped kind of coin the term or popularize the term digital health to describe this like growing space. And so I worked at Rock Health for many years and then just we were in San Francisco and just like needed a change of pace, needed to get out of San Francisco. And so my husband and I moved. Well, I should say this. I should tell the truth. My husband. <laughs> we're telling the truth. Yes, now it's starting. My husband was sick of of San Francisco and what he calls the monoculture, uh, the, the kind of just like how everybody works in tech in San Francisco. And so he moved us to New York, and I left kicking and screaming. Uh, I was not excited to leave San Francisco. Now, in hindsight, it was a good move for us. But um, at the time, I was like really bummed to leave San Francisco, and I didn't want to leave. But New York opened a lot of opportunities for me, and I started doing what is has been my favorite job so far, which is teaching. So I created the first MBA-level course on digital health and investing in digital health at Columbia Business School. And I first taught that in 2015 and have been teaching it um, every year since. It's uh, I'm an adjunct there. So it's a short course that I teach. And I love it. And I love working with students. And I love like supporting kind of the next generation of digital health leaders and people who might not even be going into digital health, but are going into various areas of healthcare where just having a better understanding of the possibilities is important. So I did that. And then... <laughs> Now, I'm just like aging myself. The older you get, the longer your intro gets. Um, you are not old and you are so accomplished so, to brag about it. Um, I decided at that point, I was like, I am kind of faking it in healthcare. Like, I don't like, I know how to make money in healthcare. I don't know how to make an impact. And so I, I went back to school. Um, I was like, right, I love teaching school. Why don't I go back to school? So I went back and got my MPH. And did it with a concentration in women's and reproductive health, as that was just a theme within digital health that I'm most excited about. And so I, I did that program at Johns Hopkins and at the same time, like started a company in the space. <laughs> and this is just getting really long. Started this company called Natalist in 2018. And our and that was really born out of my own experiences trying to get pregnant. So here's the story. It's, it's a funny one. So if anybody has tried to get pregnant, you probably like know about this fertility friendly lube. You kind of, you can't use regular lube when you're trying to get pregnant because a lot of them have spermicides. So they'll kill the sperm. So that you can't work. get pregnant. So yeah. it's great if you're trying to not get pregnant. But as soon as you start getting pregnant, you have to get fertility friendly lube. There are only a handful of lubricant manufacturers that have FDA cleared lube that is like shown to protect sperm and not kill sperm. So literally like trying to get pregnant, using all these products, pregnancy tests, ovulation tests, basal thermometers, and this lube. And this box was sitting on the side of my bed. And it has this like homey looking white blonde woman holding like cradling a baby. I was like, like, how is this sexy? Like, I know I get it that this is an FDA cleared medical device. However, like I'm using it to have sex. And this is like totally ruining the mood. And I look at like my products, my beauty products. I look at like the products that I'm using to like moisturize. And I'm like, I don't understand why healthcare is so far from like a beautiful TLC experience. And so I had never done a physical product. I, I don't think I had even invested in like a physical, we call it CPG, consumer packaged goods. I, I knew nothing about this, but I was like, all of these products that I'm buying, I was looking at them. They were all ugly as hell. They all did not match in branding. They were all found at different aisles of the of the pharmacy. And so I had this vision to kind of bring it all under one brand. And so that Natalist was born. And um, we create a variety of products, prenatal vitamins, ovulation tests, pregnancy tests, lube, lube fertility-friendly lube, FDA-cleared fertility-friendly lube, fertility supplements, and pregnancy products as well that are like beautifully designed, but work well and even better than I think the incumbents. Um, and we have a commitment to Mother Earth. So our products are all plastic neutral and we care deeply about 
picking better packaging that is, you know, better for Mother Earth because we're like trying to promote having children <laughs> and we can't bring children into this world if they don't have a world to be brought into. So started Natalist in 2018, um, grew it um, substantially throughout the pandemic and last year had the opportunity to like get acquired. It was kind of an opportunistic time and a company called Everly Health was interested in expanding its women's health. And so exactly a year ago, we were acquired. And I stayed on as the EVP of women's health for the overarching company that includes Everly Well, which has a lot of at-home tests and Natalist. So that brings me to today. And I'm going to shut up now because I think we're probably at our hour. And everyone, thank you for listening. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) You have a lot of things to share. I know. But I one of my like biggest regrets in life is not freezing my eggs in my 20s. And I will not have any more biological children. Like it is not possible for me. I have I have one child who is my biological child. And I'm very grateful for that, but I'm, I'm not able to have more. And if I had frozen my eggs in my 20s, I likely, hopefully would not be in the same situation. And the fact is like, unfortunately, the best time to freeze our eggs is we can when we can least afford it. And actually when I was in, when I was 25, which probably would, would have been the best time, I think that year, only about 500 women froze their eggs. 500? Yeah. How many mm, How many eggs do we have? In your, in your like, total? No, like, I don't know, in a year. Oh, like well, how many you have, do you you're born with millions of eggs, right. and they start, but it, like, decreases drastically by the time you're in puberty, yeah. and is, like, they're all gone by menopause. So generally, you freeze, you get between, you know, 12 and 20 eggs, and you need nine eggs for a 70% chance of a live birth. So sometimes women go through multiple cycles because they're like, well, I want a few children, so I'll go through a couple cycles. It's about two weeks, and I can tell you more about the process. But, you know, because I didn't do it, I've, for the last couple of years, really felt like, felt drawn to finding a way to support more young women to preserve their fertility and just leave more options on the table. And, I mean, female empowerment is like a very common thread in everything that I've done. And so I came up with this idea um, se- seven years ago that was we were not ready for it seven years ago, but now is the time, which is a company called Cofertility that just launched. And we are enabling women to freeze their eggs for free by donating half of them to a family that couldn't otherwise conceive. So that includes people who are infertile like myself, gay dads, women who've gone through cancer treatments and have, you know, have destroyed their eggs with people who carry, you know, deadly genetic diseases. There are a lot of reasons why people need egg donors. And we hope to find really, we have over 50 women. I shouldn't, I probably shouldn't say that because by the time this launches, we'll have many, many more. Um, But when we record this, we have over 50 women that have signed up, have gotten like kind of pre-approved and are ready to match with families. So I'm really excited about this like new chapter in my career and supporting both women and families and working together to kind of just make everybody's dreams come true. Yeah. Wow. I think, I think we're, we're done. I yeah. think that covered it. Bye. <laughs> so it sounds like your love for business came first. Is that right? Oh yeah. I like, I mean, when I was young, I was very, I was always like cooking up something literally. Like I had like a library in, in my bedroom, like charging people to borrow my books or I had like a nail salon. I mean, I always, yes, I've always been pretty enterprising. My dad's an entrepreneur and kind of watched him, um, you know, work and be his own boss, which always like appealed to me. I've only had a boss probably like under like six months of my entire career. Um, and I definitely work better when I, when I don't have a boss. And then what makes you so passionate about healthcare, but specifically women's health? Well, women's health has historically been not built by or for us. So in terms of like just the status quo in women's health, it is pretty horrendous. And anyone like with a uterus knows this. Um, There are so many pain points that you face from literally from the time you get your period until until you die. And the entire healthcare system was built built by men. Clinical trials have largely excluded women, especially pregnant women. And so in my mind, there's just like, it's such an arbitrage opportunity because the bar is so low. Oh, man. And um, there's just so much 
left to be desired. And so in terms of like where I can make a big impact, I feel like women's health is a big one. And then just like selfishly, I want to improve it for myself and my friends and my <laughs> female, you know, counterparts and and just make it make it better. It sounds like there's so much to improve. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of male investors think that women's health is a niche. They look at the market opportunity and it's it's mind-boggling because it's it's an, obviously not a niche. It's at least half the people. Um, but women are not only are we like half the humans, but we also completely control the healthcare spending and healthcare decision making on behalf of our entire families. So even companies that don't think they're women's health companies, chances are women are buying the products. We make 85% of the healthcare decisions on behalf of all of our families. We're making the appointments, we're buying the products. So like women's health is recognizing that women are are running the show in terms of like healthcare for everyone. And so when I hear like male investors, I mean this is like I hear this from so many female founders in the space, they'll be like, you know, I have I'm I'm making a company that's like, you know, supporting women with periods, period products. And the male investors would say it's too niche. I'm just like for you, because you don't have a period. Yeah, half exactly. of the, half like of the world is women. <laughs> exactly. And so it's just like, whoa, actually, this is a really amazing business opportunity because all these VCs are missing out. And so there's an impact potential there. But then there's also just a lot of money to be made. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much, there's so much to improve. And we've come far, but we also have so far to come. Yes. So far to go, right? So far. And I feel like in the past few years is I've been seeing a lot more fertility products and women's health products. It's it's gotten so big and it mm-hmm. it looks like it's gotten so big, but I'm just like, oh, well, now there's finally women's health. Yeah. Because, I don't know, 20 years ago, we weren't talking about freezing our eggs. We weren't talking about periods. We weren't talking about fertility. Yeah. L- you saying fertility-friendly lube would have, like, shut down the internet. Yeah. I mean, it still does. We just did a, we just ran a big campaign for Natalist, like an ad campaign on TV. And like a lot of the networks told us that we couldn't have ads that had like breastfeeding women in it. But there's sex everywhere. There's and like, sex. that's okay. Well, and like erectile dysfunction's okay. Yeah. And there's a lot of, and I mean, our ads on Facebook are constantly being, our, we have an ad, we, we just don't even run it anymore, but like it is literally an illustration of a uterus on a flag that's just supposed to stand for like, you know. Female, female empowerment. empowerment. And it like constantly gets shut down for being not appropriate. And I'm just like, you literally have the like grossest rape culture ads for different products. And like, we can't have literally just a, a anatomy. Human, yeah. Body. It's so. like showing an elbow. Yeah. It's still, it's still very problematic, but there are groups. Um, there are groups that are, gosh, the center for intimacy justice, I think is the name of it. We worked with them. They did like a, a great op-ed in the New York times about, um, all the companies in women's health that have been shut down and they showed like, here are the products that like the ads on Facebook were shut down for. And then here's what was approved. And you see like these ads that are for like erectile dysfunction where like they have like a cactus that like is like clearly like, show, you know, what I mean, just things that Google it because it's really interesting to see what gets approved and what doesn't because it is seeped in sexism. Yeah. So on the note of female empowerment, because you mentioned kind of the the intersection between you being very business minded, but also you being very into female empowerment and also wanting to have biological children and how that's been a struggle for you. What is it like to be a female business owner and entrepreneur these days? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, it's like in the beginning of my career, it was really hard. So women are judged based on what we've accomplished and men are judged based on their potential. And this is like study after study shows this. And so when I was 25 pitching Rock Health, people did not take me seriously and hadn't really accomplished that much at the time. And so it, I, I really struggled. It was really difficult to fundraise. And I had imposter syndrome. And I basically was just like trying to power through, but it was really difficult. And then kind of the further along I got in my career, it almost, um, the the concept really flipped for me. And because I had actually accomplished something, I feel like I was getting like more attention than I probably deserved just because, you know, I had, I had accomplished a few things that, you know, I was, I was really proud of. And I was like, great, give me all the press you, that you can give. But also like just recognizing that, you know, it's not fair that we view. And when I say we, I mean like the media, um, investors, like that we don't treat and, and employers, 
you know, that we don't, we don't believe in women the way we believe in men. Women have to like prove themselves and women of color have, it's even worse for them, right? They have to prove themselves over and over again to kind of get the same sort of credibility that is like built in for, for white men. And we're also expected to usually be the caregiver, right? And to be the one that's taking them to school and caring for them and taking them to appointments. (laughs) And what we were talking about before with freezing your eggs is especially nowadays, like so many women, like I am empowered to chase my career and to focus on my career, but I'm 27 and everyone's also telling me your biological clock is ticking. Yeah. Well, for the first time, so the age of of having a first child is increasing. And for the first time in history, it's now 30, which is awesome. Or maybe that's not the first time the average age of having a child is 30. But in in big cities, it's much later than like in the South, in Charleston, for instance. And so, you know, a lot of... um, a lot of what is not said is that a lot of these women have frozen their eggs and they're not like when you see someone getting pregnant over 40, the chances of it actually coming from a round of IVF that was done at 40 is, you know, I think your chances are like 15% success rate at that age. However, if you had eggs, your eggs from when you were 25, it would be a very different story. Your chance of getting pregnant do not really rely on your age. It really depends on the age of the eggs. And the biggest reason for miscarriage is chromosomal abnormalities and your eggs, as you age, like every cell in your body turn, turn bad. I don't know how to say it like in a bad <laughs> they way. They just change. Have, they adapt. You incre- it increases the chance of chromosomal abnormalities, which lead to, to miscarriages. And so that's why your miscarriage rates go up quite a bit. That's why um, genetic defects increase, you know, as you age. And so I, I love being a mom. It's the coolest thing I've done. I became a mom when I was 34 and, um, you know, I, I don't regret it, but it took me a long time to become a mom. And, you know, I, I accomplished a lot before that. And one of the things I, I, I'm always telling you and Kayla is like, you know, like travel, see the world, like do things for you. I mean, even after you have kids, you can do all that, but it's certainly easier when you don't have that level of responsibility. It's also been really cool to see not just a woman who wants to work, but a woman who is really able to like create businesses and sell businesses and create so much healthcare change and, and create such a big impact because there, while there are a lot of women who want to be moms and that's amazing, there's a lot of women who put their career on hold or they end their career yeah. because they want to be a mom and you are doing both. Yeah. Yeah. You And you can do both. I think what happens, and I see this happen in even... Even my friendships where the woman is doing well in her career, I see this happen. There's actually studies that show that even within breadwinner, uh, where the woman is the breadwinner in the relationship and hetero relationships, that she actually ends up doing even more housework because they're like overcompensating for what feels like a backwards dynamic. Obviously, it's not a backwards dynamic, but you're kind of like making up for like these social norms that have been ingrained in you since you were a young child. So basically, like no matter... No matter what, uh, the status quo in heteronormative relationships is that the woman is doing more of the housework, more of the caregiving, more of the, I don't even know what you call it, like the mind share of like planning things and remembering things. The mental load. You're always thinking about it. Exactly. So, you know, I feel like that's even like separate outside of career, like making sure that you and your partner, that first of all, you have like... If, if your husband or your partner is not a feminist, like dump him, like get rid <laughs> Leave of him. him now, like get rid of him because I, I've, I've seen it play out so many times and it's just never pretty. But anyways, what happens and what I see a lot is that, oh, men, men make more than women on the dollar, right? Like women make 73 cents on the dollar that every man makes. So especially during the pandemic, men were making more, even if they had like similar careers or similar place in their, in their life. Um, or in their professions, the men were making more. And so when someone had to stay home and take care of the child during COVID, it was like, well, I make less. And so if anyone's going to half-ass their job, it's going to have to be me because my husband makes more and we need the money. And so, you know, women were like kind of having to make sort of sacrifices in their career that men didn't have to make during the pandemic. And then that just kind of created this vicious cycle of like, women opting out of the workforce or getting pushed out of the workforce because they didn't have the sort of capacity that men men had. And this was like, it was basically amplified during the pandemic, but it's kind of like, it's been going on for years, right? I think that that's like, it's interesting to see how women prioritize their career or how they like internalize that like motherhood is 
more important to them than fatherhood should be to their partner, right? Like to me and my husband have worked on this for many years. And I will say fatherhood is like, we, we kind of view parenting equally. Now I was raised like by a single dad. So I didn't have, like my dad braided my hair and got me dressed and like, like helped me learn how to read like, you know, the stocks in the back of the newspaper. The period um, book and then the socks yeah. book. So that, that was hard. It was very hard to get my period with like, you know, with the dad. That was weird. But yeah, I mean, I think that we all have some of these. I was very fortunate to be brought up with a father who like, like, in fact, at, at moments in my life when I was like, I want to actually go into journalism. I love storytelling. I wanted to go into journalism. My dad's like, nope, you're going to business. Like, you're good at math. Like, my dad didn't go to college. So me, I'm first generation college student. He's like, you're going to get a job. You're going to have a 401k. And, you know, he really he really helped me, uh, you know, push me towards careers that would be like financially rewarding. And I'm so glad he did. So it sounds like it's about making sure that you're on the same page and talking about it because the the norm, the default is that it kind of just falls naturally on the woman. And I, I think when we say that a lot of men get defensive because they think we're blaming them, but it's kind of like, if you don't change your default, it's going to be default and you have to actively push yeah. for it to be different. Otherwise, like, yeah, I, I am just going to do more things. I am just going to think about more things. <laughs> yeah. Like we are kind of, it's in our blood. And you just can't, that is like women for some reason, whether it is because we're taught to be this or because it comes natural to us, like we are caregivers and we are problem solvers. And so I will say this, like I've, I've never done my husband's laundry. We've been together 15 years. I've never once done his laundry. I make it very clear that like, you know, where I I have my boundaries, but then like I cook more because I like cooking more. And like, there are things that I'm like, I like to do this and I'm, you know, it's enjoyable to me. And he, you know, he picks up things that I don't want to do like the trash, you know, it's funny. But then like, when we go to get gas, he'll be like, you go out and get it. Like, why do I have to get it? Just because I'm the man. And I was like, that's a good point. So I ended up getting a hybrid car so I can just plug it in. So I don't have to get yeah. gas. So I didn't like getting gas and he doesn't like getting gas. So, and I think that there are things that you'll be more and there are things that won't bother you, but there are things that you should kind of like realize, recognize that like it, it adds up. And if it takes away from other things that you want to do in your life, that's not fair. Um, and if um, if a guy is like defensive about it, then he's probably lame. <laughs> like, would you remember right? the the era of like, just make me a sandwich? Oh, my God. Yeah. Like if your man yes. says that to you, I don't I mean, even like jokingly, like, no, like we're not continuing that. No, you make me a sandwich or like we'll make our own sandwiches or we'll yeah. order Uber Eats. Let's go order Uber. That's exactly get our what own it is. sandwiches. Yeah. I mean, it's, it comes, I mean, it, and I, I say that all the time and this comes from a place of privilege, but like outsourcing things that neither of us want to do is like a marriage saver. Like, I don't want to clean the house. I don't want to clean toilets. So, you know, we pay people to do that. And I, we haven't always been able to afford that. Like there was, there were times in our lives when we weren't able to, but as you know, we both had successful careers. It's important for us that we're able to like, offload the things that we don't want to do that we don't want to like fight over doing, which also frees you up. I mean, if I'm spending an hour cleaning, I could be making a lot of money in that hour. It's easier for me to make that money and then pay someone versus like do it myself. And so it's yeah. just like prioritization in life. And, and, you know, you'll you, like, hopefully you get there. It's like, it's not always like that. I, you know, I, I had a lot of jobs to make ends meet that were not, I've been a bartender. I've been a salesperson. I mean, I've had so many things that would not enable me to have a cleaning person. But now I do. And it's just much easier. Heck it's yeah. much easier. They say money can't buy happiness, but cleaning last, ladies though. Lastly, right? Like and and Uber Eats and there are a lot of things that just make it a lot easier. And 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 take the stress off. I think it's just really important to be explicit about like here, like literally earlier this week, I like texted I like came up with like a new schedule from for our son and you pitched it to him I like pitched it to him I was like all right here's like the new schedule like here's when you take him to school here's when I take him to school here's like when you come back I was like I want to start working out on Saturday mornings so I'm gonna need you to like take over on Saturday mornings and you know I mean I, I think it's just like it, and it's weird because it's like kind of like a business email but I think it's really important to kind of just be clear about um and and fair about like how you how you divide up the work and and it really shouldn't be tied to how much money you make. I think that that's where that's why women have historically picked up more because the women are making less because sexism, because gender pay gap. 
And it really, it shouldn't be tied to that. And it shouldn't be tied. And, and, and it could like ebb and flow, right? Like you'll have times when you have more time and times when you have less time. But I think having that, and there's a book called Fair Play. Uh, there's a whole like website and series around it that is a great toolkit for couples that want to be more equitable in terms of household stuff. I mean, you say it's like business, but I think that's the point. Like we we schedule, we prioritize, we talk about business. Why aren't we doing the same thing with our relationships? Because you would do the same thing with your employees. If all you ever do is you micromanage and you do their work for them, then they're not going to do it. Yeah. But if you say, I want you to take ownership of this and and not just can you help, this is yours. Yeah, yeah. You're going to take the lead. We can do that in our relationships. It's okay to, it's very okay to be like, hey, I, I want you to do this. You're going to take ownership of this and not I'm going to remind you. Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest difference. Yeah. Is like, you're I not mean, helping your me. Like your roommates. Like you're helping the household. That needs, to get, that needs to get done and figuring that out. And that looks different for everyone. But like, it just, it's just, I have many friends that are the breadwinners and they still do more. And I, I mean, every woman I know says that even if they divide the chores like down the middle and split it, they're still like, we just, women naturally carry that mental load. And so we're the ones planning double dates. We're the ones making the doctor's appointments. We're the ones like, once you have kids, it's like literally women can't get, moms cannot get off the school list. Like for some some reason, schools like, schools like can't figure out, even women who are like, and dads who are like, hey, I'm the contact person. Contact me when my kid throws up at school. Like they still they somehow like, there's some crazy like EMR that, <laughs> that schools have that like defaults to the mom, even for dads who like want to get, and that's not fair to dads either. And that's not fair for gay couples. That's not, there's a, a single parents. Like we can't, we can't continue putting the load on like a certain gender and making assumptions about, you know, what the family structure is. Yeah. It's different for everyone. And it, it doesn't have to be just what you yeah. grew up with. Yeah. Well, I mean, just think about changing tables, like men's bathrooms do not have changing tables. And it is like embarrassing that they don't, because not only does that assume for straight couple, not only does that assume that every child has a female caregiver somewhere, but it also assumes that like, if they do have a female and male caregiver, that the female caregiver is the one that's going to change them. I mean, it's crazy to me that it's 2022 and men's rooms still don't have the changing tables the way women's rooms do. On the note of like discrepancies, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your podcast and what yeah. it means to be a healthcare optimist. Cause I know that's how you identify. What does that mean? <laughs> Oh man, I just, I think I just have that on LinkedIn because I needed like a but I really a like it thing to say. Well, I think you know I give our healthcare system like I I talk about it in a negative light quite a bit. There's a lot I do that's broken I about it. Yet I feel like the future is is even better, and it's mostly because the people. Like my favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This it attracts amazingly passionate motivated, impact-oriented individuals who want to make a difference. And so it's just like the best people work in healthcare, in my opinion. And so I started my podcast to the heart of healthcare to just talk to them and learn from them and cover, um, we cover everything from addiction to depression to like how we can rewrite and support unhouse people to me, storytelling, bringing it back in, even though my dad wouldn't let me do it in college. Um, I, you know, it's like I still have this part of me that really loves, um, you know, creating creating a, a platform for people to make change. And so that's kind of the goal. It's hard. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much longer I'm going to do my podcast because it's just hard and it takes a lot of work, as you know. It's been a really fun journey, but now I'm, um, you know, filling my time with some more financially rewarding endeavors. <laughs> and so we'll see what happens and what direction it goes. Maybe I'll hand the host mic off to someone else or not do it weekly because it's just like it's quite time consuming. But it's been it's been great. And I've had a lot of really cool guests like Mark Cuban, Charlemagne the God, That's awesome. um, who have such interesting backgrounds and like so grateful that they've, you know, come on to talk to me and my listeners. I mean, obviously I'm biased. I think podcasts are a really great way to spread messages and spread content like yeah. 
talking about the social determinants of health, talking about how there's so many discrepancies, because often we create podcasts to talk about something that's not being talked about enough. Yeah. So in your podcast journey or just in your in your journey, what have you seen in healthcare that needs to change? Oh my gosh, so much. Um, I would say anything that still has stigma. I feel like there's things that there and there's so many things that have stigma. I mean, within women's health, but also broadly within like addiction, with mental health. There are um there's just there's so much where people are not getting the care they need because of judgment of others and fear of that judgment. And so in my mind, those opportunities are just ripe for change because we can help normalize and we're seeing it be normalized. Miscarriage, you know, celebrities talking about infertility, these things are starting to change. And I think like the younger generation isn't afraid to talk about their challenges and normalize these challenges, which is amazing. Because can you imagine, like, I can't imagine my dad's generation like talking about going to therapy, right? Like, like to them, it's like, if you go to therapy, you're broken. And that's like something you should be ashamed of. But I feel like the TikTok generation is like- The TikTok generation? Yeah. They're just like, so I was talking to my therapist the other day and- ugh, Exactly. It's like, and it's fucking awesome. It's it's amazing. And I think that, you know, there. I mean, I could go on and on about the things that can be unstigmatized. Periods, um, pooping. Oh my God. <laughs> sex, lube. Sex, you know, like needing- medication for depression, anxiety, seeking help so in much. general. Yeah. There's so much stigma yeah. around that. I think that's something that I have seen in the last couple of years. And I don't know if it was because of the pandemic showed us this or because the pandemic caused this, but so many more people are talking about mental health, yeah. especially on, on social media. So many more people are open about it. And that's just a domino effect. Like I know, um, Chrissy Teigen, yeah. she talked about her miscarriage. And like, yes, maybe it took a celebrity normalizing it, but now people are talking about it. I see friends posting their fertility journey. And we used to think like miscarriages were like, oh my God, she had a miscarriage. Like yeah. it's so common. It's like how many? Like One three? out of four. One out of four. One out of four pregnancies end with miscarriage. It's so yeah. common. And it doesn't mean that, that you did anything wrong and that you're broken. Yeah. And I think just continuing to normalize those things makes people understand yeah. that one, they're not alone. Two, it doesn't mean that something's severely wrong with them. And then three, there's help yeah. out there. Yeah. I, I think those are the, the most fun companies to start because you can like the sort of marketing that you can do is like even for your non-customers is game changing. I mean, that's how I, that's how I feel at Natalist is like I, I'm glad that we've been able to make you know, be part of millions of women's journeys, helping them get pregnant and carry healthy pregnancies. I love that. But even more women have benefited just from reading our content, finding our blog and like learning something or just like feeling more comfortable to talk about their experience or say what they need. And so to me, like those are the best companies to start, which is why I'm so excited about co-fertility because it's like, I'm so excited to just talk more about egg freezing and make it like a normal conversation. And actually there was like a study that showed that women who go through egg freezing are like really depressed about it. They're like sad about it. When I saw that study, I was like, are you kidding me? I just want to be their cheerleader. I want to get them so pumped. Like hell yeah, you're freezing your eggs. thing they're doing. Like why are you, don't be sad. Like who's telling you to be sad? Like fuck them. This is like the coolest thing you're doing. And just like such a great opportunity to rewrite that experience and just make it way more positive and communal. And so one of the things that we're doing is like we're grouping women going through at the same time together so they can like, you know, if they're in the same place, we can have like shot parties where we're like coming in, having a nurse give them all shots at the same time, or just if they're virtually across, you know, maybe they're somewhere more rural, virtually they can connect through our online platform to like ask questions and talk to each other. But we think having like that cohort, because it's so weird, like there's this unspoken rule in fertility clinics where you can't look other people in the eye when you're in the waiting room. And so it's, I don't know why it's so weird. But it's like so private and you almost feel like you're invading someone's privacy by being in the waiting room with them because you know that they're going through something as well, which is so weird because really you should be like high-fiving each other. Really, you should be in the waiting room being like, look like, at us. Hell yeah. <laughs> like, look at us figuring this shit out. This is hard. But like, here we are. We've showed up. And so I'm, I'm excited to do that for young women with egg freezing because they shouldn't be sad about it. Like, there's nothing sad about 
giving yourself more options to have children later and not settling, right? Like a lot of women settle because having children is very important to them. And so they settle with someone they should not settle with. And like giving yourself the chance to do everything that you want in your career and in your personal life and meet the right person who's going to be a lifelong father for your children and being certain that that person is the one, um, to me is like, is freedom. It's taking control. It's empowering. Yes. Like you said, like rewriting your story. Yeah. And I, I just wish I could do that for my 25 year old self, but you're doing it for so many others. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's so cool to create a thriving business that makes a lot of money and changes the world. But it's so cool to see that same mentality in business changing so many lives for the better. Oh, yeah. You know, we've come a long way and, and healthcare is and great and useful, but it's also very corrupt and it's also very broken. And I obviously feel also very passionate that so much of healthcare needs to change. And like the impact of creating Natalist has like literally changed women's health. And that's it's just crazy totally. to think about like how many opportunities there are out there. Yeah. You've sold me on the egg donor thing. And so now I want to know. Yeah, you're going to do it. I mean, I don't know. Join I don't want to like commit program. to the Healthy Charleston podcast. I'm going to do it. But right. I'm very interested. Did everybody hear that? Hannah has committed oh my God, stop. to being part I of our cut that program out. where she is going to donate half of her eggs. This is why you came on the podcast. <laughs> I want to know like what, what are the biggest concerns of freezing your eggs? Like what are people afraid of and what's the process like? So it's very it's a it's a very low risk procedure. I think they're afraid of the unknown and I think a lot of people are afraid of shots. So I was one of those people who was afraid of shots. And before I did IVF, I had to I did like kind of precursor to IVF. So egg freezing is just the first half of IVF by the way. So the first half of IVF is you like get the eggs and the second half of IVF is you fertilize the eggs and put them back in the uterus. And so I like put off IVF for a long time because I was afraid of the shots. So I ended up going to my therapist, who's still my therapist today for over 10 years. And I did like exposure therapy for getting shots because I was like terrified of like having to get shots. You're probably not afraid of shots. You I mean, I don't know if anyone session. likes them, especially the the thought of a lot of them. I know. I would faint though before. Oh, like, yeah. I, thought. I was like so crazy. Like really Now bad. I'm so good at shots. It's amazing. So you have to do shots like every day for, you know, 10 to 14 days. And then you go under light anesthesia and it's a 20 minute procedure where they go in with what is essentially a catheter and retrieve as many eggs as they can. So the drugs that you're taking to kind of prep for the egg retrieval, um, and you can do it with your IUD in, you can't be on birth control, but you can do it with your IUD in, is basically growing as many eggs as possible in one cycle. So generally your body would grow one egg on one side each month, In this case, they just like kind of grow as many eggs as they can. You don't want to grow so many that you're like really uncomfortable or like over hyperstimulate. But I think the risks of that are like, I should look this up, like under half a percent. It's very low. And and generally physicians, like they'll look at your hormone, your baseline hormone levels. They look at your, you do blood work um, kind of halfway through, sometimes twice. Uh, so they have an understanding of kind of like how your eggs are developing, how many you have, how many kind of how many follicles are growing. And through that, they kind of like decide to give you more or less medication based on that. So it's very controlled and you're working directly with the doctor, right? Your doctor is the one that's doing the entire procedure. And these are reproductive endocrinologists. So they're OBGYNs that have additional training in fertility care. And then they retrieve your eggs. And then like a lot of people just like, I have friends that like went to work that day. Okay. There's so much that I don't know. My mind is blown right now. Okay, I have a question. So yeah. because we only have so many eggs, like does freezing your eggs prevent you from like having no. them later? Or You know what no, I mean? No, no. And that's a good question. And people ask us all the time. We have it on our FAQs. It does not. It does not impact your, your fertility at all. You are like very likely to get pregnant if you have sex during that time. So you yeah, are you're asked to like eggs. refrain from having sex and you have so to, fertile. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you're off birth control, like you need to get back on it right after it makes you like extra fertile. Um, but it doesn't impact your fertility at all. I mean, these are eggs that would be, you know, shed naturally anyways. Like you, you lose more than 12 eggs a year, right? Like you're losing thousands of eggs every year. So you're not, not every egg ends up maturing in the follicle and dropping and being able to get fertilized. So you could freeze your eggs this year and then just happen to get pregnant next year. Oh yes. Yeah. Totally. This is just a a fail safe. Most women like 
look, infertility impacts like one out of eight couples, one out of seven couples now they say. So like chances are, and hopefully like you don't need them, right? Like if, if all goes well, you won't need them. The cases where you could need them is like if you wait until after 35, you greatly increase the chances of needing them. And as the age of, you know, marriage and pregnancy, like shift up greater, that increases. This is why we went from one in eight couples to one in seven couples, because a lot of infertility is age related. And then some people like, I don't know how like kosher this is, but some people like to do it for like gender selection. So you could actually like, you know, down the line, unfreeze the eggs, fertilize them with your partner and determine like if you want a boy or a girl. And some people like want to do that. Or if you end up marrying someone with that carries something genetic, you might want to also do that so that you can get the eggs tested or get the um, embryos tested so that you know that like, you know, you're not going to be carrying on that whatever disease it is. So just it opens up a lot of options. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and as I said, like, I wish I had, I would pay a lot of money for my 25 year old eggs. Yeah, I really would. And so I said, like, and the other thing is if you don't need them down the line, it could be a family member that does that you could donate to. Like, I don't have any family members that, you know, could donate to me. So, you know, that that's another thing we have. a We have a woman right now on our platform who is going through the split program and her sister has <laughs> cancer and, or had cancer. And so she's, she's, She's donating the half to the family that's going to cover her procedure and the half that she gets to keep, she's donating yeah. to her sister. I'm just like, that's oh my really gosh. Because she wouldn't be able to afford to do it otherwise. So it's and not so just for you. That. It's for other people. It could be. It absolutely could be. Or it could just be, I mean, just having that like peace of mind of like, yeah. I don't have to rush to have, like my biological clock is not ticking anymore because I've like put a freeze on it and they're, you know, safe in a freezer and are with split uh, with our split program we pay for the freezing for 10 years. So that's a, that's a good amount of time. I'm kind of always wondering because way more people are talking about fertility and miscarriages. Are we getting more infertile or are we just talking about it and recording it more? Yes. So both, right? Like we're having children later and that leads to more chromosomal abnormalities, which leads to more miscarriages. So yes, as like the average age of conception increases, we're going to have more miscarriages. But also there is a direct link to PFAS, which are rubber chemicals, and infertility. And so just like our environment, like the environmental health impact on our reproductive systems is like a very clear tie. And so a lot of what we're facing, I mean, it's hard to kind of parse it out because rubber chemicals are all around us. And um, it's kind of hard to like draw like a direct line. It's not like I, I heat it up my food in a, in a plastic container one time and now I'm having miscarriages. But one of one of my theories for myself, my mom worked in a um, manufacturing plant when she was when she was pregnant with me and even before. Um, and she had my mom had over a dozen miscarriages. So oh. she had my sisters and then she had started working in manufacturing, had over a dozen miscarriages, had adopted my brother and then had me like randomly at 37. And so, you know, that like there certainly could be a link between and this is like BPA was kind of standard in plastic then there could certainly be a link. There's no way to really know. My theory is that that did impact her infertility. And because my sisters didn't have infertility, but I did, I have, you know, in my in my mind, it's certainly me being exposed in utero to BPA at a plastic manufacturing plant is certainly, you know, a direct could be a direct link. There's a lot of research out there. There are scientists that are like specifically looking at it, but it's like pretty compelling. There's a, yeah, there's a lot out there. And like with the revolution of, of fast food and microwaves yeah. and easy access and like processed foods and totally and sperm too. I mean, we, we talk about female fertility, but like a third of cases of infertility are due to the female, a third are due to the male and a third are kind of like a combo of both. So like sperm is just as fragile as eggs. I mean, the only difference is that sperm regenerates every few months. So while we are born with all the eggs that we'll ever have, and they only decrease in like in quality and quantity, men can make changes in their life. And, you know, a lot of sperm health is just like male health. And so men like can, can kind of overcome some of these things. And, you know, there are sperm tests that kind of can show you the quality of the sperm. And you can see men who like make lifestyle changes and then their sperm tests afterwards, um, how that changes. But with IVF, it's interesting because, you know, you get 
million, like you get millions of sperm and then they literally take like, they look at the best sperm and like fertilize the eggs with them. You don't have to have like a hundred percent high quality sperm. Even if you only have 10% high quality sperm, they're literally picking out that little sperm and injecting it, like fertilizing the egg. Whereas like with the egg, you have to use every single egg because you don't have a lot of them. So you have to fertilize every single The pressure is on for women, huh? I know. Like mother nature is pretty sexist. (laughs) And it's, I mean, is it mother nature? Yeah. Yeah. And so it sounds like it's even more important. I mean, it's important for everyone, but it's important, especially for women who have children and who want to have children to pursue improving their health because that health affects their children's health. And yeah. I mean, same goes for men, but like you said, their sperm is constantly just totally. like regenerating. Yeah. And I think going through any like medical procedure, the in better health you are, like oh, yeah. the easier it's going to be. Like the hormones aren't going to be, I mean, you know, it's, it's very weird to inject yourself with these hormones and it can make you go like be a little bit crazy. But I, I've noticed, this is not a scientific study, but I've noticed my friends that have undergone it who are like healthy and active, it's like nothing for them. It's like a breeze for them. Whereas like if you have a lot of health conditions or if you have uh, an unhealthy weight, it could be a lot more challenging. And that goes, that's true for any medical procedure. I always say like your body can either be the reason that you can do the things you want to in life or it's the reason that you don't. Yeah. And that's why health is so important. And that's why healthcare needs to change. Yeah. I mean, are we getting healthier or are we getting unhealthier? Oh my God, no. I think for the first time we have a lower lifespan than our parents. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's atrocious. And I mean, some of it, so much of it comes down to the food industry, Mm -hmm. comes down to, you know, lifestyle choices that we, that we are, I shouldn't even say we're making that we're like forced to make. Then we we Um, don't even know that we're making. Yeah. It's just our lifestyle. Yeah. And, and it's even harder for low income people, for people living in food deserts. You know, it's, it's like a privilege to be able, it is a privilege for me to be able to work out with you. You know, like how awesome is it that like, I I mean, I couldn't do it on my own. And so, yeah, no, it's, our health is definitely getting worse. I mean, it's a privilege to be able to eat healthy food. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, when you drive by a McDonald's billboard, I'm like, yeah, if, if I was financially stressed, it would be a really easy way to feed my children. Yeah. But it's horrible. But like, you're, you just want to feed your children versus yeah. like you get a meal from, I don't know, somewhere at Bear Day. <laughs> and it, well, when yeah. you get like double chicken, it's like $20. Yeah. It's very delicious. So Verde, you should sponsor this. <laughs> what do you want women to know and understand about their health? Ooh. What do you wish you could, you could tell yeah, everyone? I mean, I wish I invested in my strength earlier. So like I was in an accident uh, 14, 15 months ago. That was the first time that like my body fell out of whack. Now, never to say that I felt ever like super in touch with my body. In fact, I have always had an adversarial relationship with my body because of health issues and infertility and miscarriages that I felt like my body was always failing me. And so I kind of just like always sat with my body. It was just kind of there, but I didn't ever like go out of my way to take good care of it. And then I had this accident and then I started like, started with just like, okay, let me, I just want to feel better from like whatever happened this accident, which then Hannah, you have kind of gotten me to the point of like wanting to feel strong, which is like this super like empowering, like feminist, like inner like goddess that I've been able to like unleash that I never had until this last, you know, this last 14 months, but I've never I wish I had kind of discovered that earlier. To me, the entire like the fitness industry, the beauty industry is all like so vain and like hot, like they they herald people who are just like, it's unobtainable. It's like aspirational. And so it has always kind of made me feel like it's like been icky to me. And because it's always about like looking a certain way, not feeling a certain way. And so, um, you know, I've never like considered myself a strong person, but now I like aspire to be strong, which is like new, but like how awesome is I approach my 40th birthday next year to like, think about this goal of like, you know, can I be stronger than I've ever been in my life? And so, you know, I think if you're someone, if you're someone listening to this podcast, you probably already like have that mentality, but I think just thinking about how you as someone who has a voice and, um, you know, shares things just to like, remember that. Like we need to stop obsessing over the body, even like the whole body positivity movement. It's like, let's stop obsessing over like how we look, how we look. Like, let's just like, 
we have these bodies and this is like, we have one life, we have the health that we've been given. We have, you know, things that we've been predisposed to that we can't control, but then there's a whole lot that we can control. And so if you just focus on that, um, and, and never like, you know, make it seem like the goal is how you look. So then that just becomes like, I don't know, it, to me, at least it's not appealing. It's beauty soul industry sucking. Too. I hate the beauty industry. Yeah. I mean, when we're, we're doing things for our body to kind of take away, cause we want to change because it's a negative. It's, it's because we feel negative about our bodies versus yeah. like we care about our bodies and we care about our health and we want to be better. We want to be stronger. We yeah. want to be more resilient. We want to be more capable. Like the, it's just such a mindset shift. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's so much more sustainable and there's so much more motivation because like pretty is as pretty does, as my mom used to say. And like, yeah. you might, you know, look amazing and whatever now, but like, do you feel amazing? And how were you, were you kind in your relationships and were you capable? Like yeah. who really gives a shit that you are quote unquote skinny? Like I, I hate when people are like, you look so skinny. It's just, no, like you look capable and you look strong. Me, so I know. <laughs> you know, Instagram. But, yeah, but, no, I know what you're saying though, like in terms of like compliments, like, and I think we need to make sure that when we're, you know, complimenting young girls that it's not always like, oh, she's so pretty. About the way she looks. Yeah, she's yeah. so cute. Like we need to be like, no, she's, my gosh, she's so smart, so clever. She's brave. She's and brave. smart. Yeah. yeah, she's independent. But it starts like from a really young age and then you're, the girl's, you know, start to want to chase that sort of positive feedback versus other positive feedback. And so I don't know, like confidence just has to come from within. That's the only type of confidence that's sustainable. Like any sort of vanity confidence, if, if you are only confident because of how you think you look, like your looks will change. <laughs> I hate to say it to you. Like we all change and like what a privilege to age, right? Like how awesome it is that we get to like live another year and like be wiser and smarter and, you know, more compassionate for everything that we've gone through. And so if we're just like so obsessed with chasing youth and skinniness, then you're like, you're, that's just not sustainable. You'll be really miserable by the time you hit 30. <laughs> you'll be like, and you'll be depressed by the time you hit 40. And I, I've met these women and it's like, they just spent so much time chasing the wrong thing. So yeah, I don't know. I think that, that would be my advice. Just like, like, I don't know. Be It's really cool to be strong. I mean, I'm not like a bodybuilder. <laughs> be clear to anyone listening how much can i do now like 55 pounds i can yeah but deadlift? what could you do last year know. no you can deadlift more than that no how that much would be squatted let's I think it was, I think it was 85 or okay. 95 but how many could i do a year ago we were just learning how to pick up yeah. a bar we were yeah. just learning how to deadlift. yeah yeah but i mean i think just to to give you a little bit of like hype like the fact that you got in this accident and like that's super shitty like you have turned that around and changed your freaking life and you've been so committed and so motivated and i think it's because you care about your health. It's it's not just about the way that you look anymore. And like, it's always, that's always a benefit, but that confidence comes from the foundation of like who you are. And then, yeah, we all like to look pretty. We all like our hair to be done, but that can't be the core. And I mean, I have just been so honored to be a part of your journey and honored to to watch your journey and just so proud of you. So you, you're doing amazing. Thank you. Thanks and you're so here. strong. I always say like my... Like, I feel like I, after like three months, I was like, I was falling off the wagon and you nagged me and got me. I know. <laughs> and now I'm like, now I'm in it. Like, now hey, you remember me? That. That's yeah. why I always urge, like, you got to follow up with people. I know. Yeah. You, you have to, you, you got to be there for people. Yeah, you do. You really do. Cause it's like, like, had you let me kind of just like melt away, I wouldn't be as consistent about it now. I mean, we do three days a week and then I do like two other things during yeah. the week as well, which Behavior I literally hard. Never, never worked out before in my life. Because again, like I viewed the fitness industry as like just awful. I mean, when I look at like Soul Cycle, how uncomfortable all those bikes and like how, you know, it's like, I always just felt bad about myself when I would go to workout classes. Cause I was like, not, I couldn't keep up with everyone. Um, and now it's like, even if I go to a class and I can't keep up, which happened to me this morning, by the way, in Pilates, I felt like I, I couldn't keep up, but I didn't even, I didn't even notice other people. I was just like, what I was noticing was like, wow, I can hold this plank for over 30 seconds now. I could not do that a year ago. And so it was just more about like my internal strength and feeling good about what I can accomplish. 
Yeah. It's fitness should leave you empowered, not feeling worse about yourself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this, they haven't focused on that. I feel like we need like a, the Lizzo of workouts yeah. where, you know, it's just like, where you just feel good and it's about, yeah, it's about feeling good and being a bad bitch. There you go. Being a strong, <laughs> badass bitch. Yeah. Hallie, thank you so much for coming on. It's been thank awesome. You. Thanks for having me. Where can our followers find you and connect with you? Copertilly.com if you're interested in egg freezing. And you can freeze your eggs without donating as well. If you're interested in just freezing, we have um, special deals with different clinics. We can help you freeze for less and with less for medications as well. And you can still have the collaboration. And then I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Hallie Teco. I'm not on TikTok. Yeah. And your podcast is the, the Heart of Healthcare. The Heart of Healthcare. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. If you want to keep up with what Hallie's doing, or if you're interested in co-fertility and want to learn more, all of the links are in the show notes below. Make sure you subscribe to the show. New episodes are out every Monday. Otherwise, have an awesome week.